0: And welcome once again to another edition of A Plain Answer here at Redeemer Broadcasting. I'm Dan Elmendorf. On the phone line with us today is Dr. L. John Van Til. He's a retired chair and professor of history, professor of business, and professor of humanities, Grove City College. And he's also a fellow for humanities, faith, and culture at the Center for Vision and Values. Dr. Van Til, it's great to have you on the phone line with us today.
1: Well, it's nice to visit with you, Dan.
0: You know, uh, the name may sound familiar to some of our listeners, and that is because Cornelius Van Til um, was your uncle, if I'm not mistaken.
1: Uh, that's correct, and um, we we were fortunate, to use a generation ahead of us, of course, and we were fortunate to live near him for uh, some time while I was doing research on my scholarly stuff, i I'm what we call an intellectual historian. I trace ideas all over the place, and I'm of the Dutch Reformed background, so we we have a lot of theology that we base everything on on the Scripture, and so I used to talk with him um, and try out ideas on him, and that was a great blessing. And so uh, he's... um, uh, well, I'm I'm kind of a student of his, I suppose you would say. He focused on apologetics and theology, and I've tried to f- I've tried to focus on apologetics in in the practical disciplines of an academic setting. And I won't go into detail, but we came to Growth City to help renew a Christian perspective here. Well, it's 40 years ago now, and uh, it's worked. And Growth City is a wonderful. Biblically based institution without being stuffy, so um, I, I had a hand and a foot or something in that, along with friends.
0: <laughs> well, you recently wrote an article for the uh, Vision and Values. There's the it's it's called the Center for Vision and Values. It was concerning um, the use of the terms. Um, terrorist, um, radical jihad, all these kind of terms. And what I wanted to ask you today, uh, Dr. Van Til, is, uh, is this. Um, on nine eleven two thousand one, 2001, America was attacked by Muslims in hijacked planes. Um, the record goes something like this. The History Channel says, On September the 11th, 2001, 19 militants associated with the Islamic extremist group Al-Qaeda Hijacked four airliners carried out suicide attacks against targets in the United States. Two of the planes were flown into the towers of the World Trade Center, in New York City. The third plane hit the Pentagon just outside washington d c The fourth plane crashed in a field in Pennsylvania. Often referred to as 9-11, the attacks resulted in extensive death and destruction, triggering major U.S. initiatives to combat terrorism, and defining the presidency of George W. Bush. Over 3,000 people were killed during the attacks in New York City and Washington, D.C., including more than 400 police officers and fighters. And, of course, we do know that there's been uh, many smaller attacks since that time. So, um, Dr. Van Til, I guess our question opening is, um, the mastermind, we're told, behind the 9-11 attack was Osama bin Laden. Uh, Can you explain what he believed and what led him to such a drastic plan against the United States?
1: Um, Yes, and I would point out that there was an attack on the Trade Towers a few years before, and we didn't uh, understand that, apparently. Our government didn't, uh, if you look back, you see that was an attempt to topple those buildings, and the technique was bad. So then they went the next time to the airplane, so this started before. But bin Laden, be brief, I could talk a while about him, because I've written about him, and I'm going to write some more. He's, He's an important person. In the history of Islam, he should be considered one of a half a dozen of the great leaders in the movement since the 7th century. And so he's been a contemporary, and uh, he's not been appreciated for what he was. He was born into a wealthy um, Saudi family who were Yemeni people. Many of the Yemenis to the south had come and worked in the kingdom, as they call it. And uh, his father was very wealthy and and did all kinds of stuff, made a lot of money building roads and buildings in Saudi Arabia. And he, he worked in that, but then he went to school, and he was he was very tall. He was shy and quiet. And, of course, his father had, I don't know how many, 126 children or something. By the time he was all done. But he was one of many children and a number of wives and uh, a little bit on the shy side. But when he went to the King's University at Jeddah, I think it was, um, there were radical professors there who were teaching that true Islam had to return to the teachings of the founder uh, Muhammad himself, uh, who died in 632, and this struck a note with uh, religiously oriented uh, Osama bin Laden, and so he he bought into that um, set of teachings that they had to have a new phase and uh, to push forward the um, conquest of the world. That's what Muhammad was about, and it it sometimes was diplomatically or economically, but often it was warlike. And so the radical professors radicalized him, and then he began as a young man, uh, early 20s, to get involved with this as as a matter of of process and warring. And so by 1978, when the Soviets came uh, into Afghanistan, by 79, um, he saw all that, and so he became involved in those kinds of movements in in Afghanistan and, and the defeat of the Soviets by the Afghans and techniques they used was very important uh, to teach him how uh, he could carry forward the uh, the jihad or the holy war mirroring Muhammad uh, in the years ahead, and so he formed this group Al Qaeda along with others which was their fighting group, and it would have chapters eventually. And a key thing is he declared war on the United States somewhat later, in 1996, because they he considered them infidels because they were working for and with the Saudis in the Holy Land, the Arabian Peninsula. And then, uh, so the duty of his group, he thought, was to reconquer the Holy Lands, chase the infidels, the Christians, the Westerners out. And of course we know most of the leaders in the United States uh, aren't Christians, but he, he missed that point. But at any rate, uh, that, was, that was all one piece of cloth for him, this, this jihad, and he declared war. And it's, you can look it up. Uh, I've read it many times. And he said why he wanted to chase the Westerners and the Americans out, because they, they were not to be in their holy land. And so that was part of his motivation. And so these different activities were uh, started, and there were all kinds of, you know, the torpedoing of the ship and the blowing up of the barracks of soldiers, I guess it was in Lebanon, all that stuff. That was all, all attempts to chase uh, mainly the United States out of their um, region. So that's who he was, and then, then people that he taught and worked with uh, perpetrated the, uh, the 9-11 affair, but it was at his behest. now, We knew where he was, and he was a bad actor under President Clinton, and he probably, President Clinton, probably had opportunity to get him. Uh, But there's a lot of politics involved there, internal in the government, and and, uh, is it something we wanted to do? Do we want to offend these people? And on and on it went. But it was early on that they knew who he was as the leader, but we were ambivalent in the government about uh, what to do about it. Eventually, they took one of the opportunities uh to find him and me, but meanwhile he was active a leader and he was over in Afghanistan at the at the um, Pakistan border and he went back and forth and he ended up being in Pakistan when he was uh, uh killed so and he was very active he he was a humble guy and he went out and did fighting himself he was wounded and all that so he was in their mind muslims minds he was a great leader and he was and uh, we have to acknowledge that. So that's who he was.
0: Well, that's helpful. And um, so, um, someone then after he was killed came in and took his place.
1: Well, he had a he had a partner in the leadership of the Al Qaeda movement. And there were chapters of it, and that's the fellow who's still around with Al Qaeda. I think his name is pronounced Al Salari, and he was a medical doctor from Egypt, and he'd been a a friend and tutor. There's a question of who all the people were that influenced bin Laden, but this guy certainly did, but he worked with them. They were compatriots. They were good friends. They trusted each other. And when Osama was killed, he has carried on. But before, this is not widely known, it's out there, but it's not widely known, that before Osama was uh, killed, um, there was a chapter of al-Qaeda in Iraq and that's after the i think it's i got the date right it was after the us uh our president pulled out the 10,000 troops or whatever we were going to leave there and so there was chaos really in iraq and they had a chapter there and they needed a new leader and they settled on this fellow called al baghdadi and his his name was probably sam or joe or something but he personally took on an Islamic name associated with Muhammad himself, Abu Bakr, I'll spell that, A-B-U-B-A-K-R, and then his last name is A-L-B-A-G-H-D-A-D-I, al-Baghdadi. And they appointed him, he he was a reserve, quiet, uh, scholarly religious guy who was a native of Iraq, and they appoint him head of this chapter. And he he ran with it. And then Osama um, was killed a little later. Or um, actually, the guy really after Osama uh, was dead. This guy, actually, it's about twenty months. This guy just is taken off with this ISIS movement. And he's the guy behind it. Now he's motivated for a rapid, radical, violent. A pursuit of jihad, because he sees the the Islamic apocalypse, the end of time is coming soon, and so, in his view, they have to do the conquering before the end of time, so they're highly motivated now to go all over the world and try and suppress the infidels and uh, carry on this uh, next level. Uh, of uh, radical, uh, terrorist activity, and he's the guy in charge. And then he he declared a caliphate. Now there hadn't been one since 1924, when it was the last one was suppressed in Turkey in a civil war. There's only well, I don't, I can't say this for sure because the 1400 year history of Islam is is huge. It's hundreds of volumes to have any sense of it. Not you know, there's some people uh, probably know all that stuff. I don't know all that stuff, but I know some. But at any rate, there's only supposed to be one caliphate, and Muhammad had one, and that's that's a geographic, political, religious uh, denomination, a setting. It's, it has geography to it, though. So this guy said, well, now we're going to have a caliphate, and there hadn't been one since 1924. So that's a distinguishing feature of his movement. And, of course, other Muslims around the world would say, oh, a caliphate. Oh, I guess we better join, and that's why... Some of these radical groups in Nigeria or maybe Lebanon or somewhere, they're tying in with ISIS, and they were probably al-Qaeda groups, and there's some tension between parts of this, but they shouldn't be seen as entirely in conflict. Ultimately, they want the same thing, but right now the leadership is coming out of this guy. He's 44 years old right now. Al-Baghdadi is kind of an interesting name to pronounce.
0: Yes, it is.
1: Baghdadi. There's, there's only a couple pictures I've never been taken, and he's been. It's been in the news. He's a a good sized guy with a heavy black beard, with of course his black tunic, and uh, impressive looking guy. And so he's he's the leader, although there are other groups on their own.
0: Well, this is very interesting. Um, quick question: This Abu Bakr al Baghdadi, uh, are his views consistent with the Quran?
1: Well, that's an interesting question uh, when you say the Quran, because um, I don't know how much time we got here, but um, the Quran is an interesting thing. I've tried to read it, and I have read it, and but it's very difficult to understand, and it's been interpreted um, many ways. Since uh, the second generation after the death of Muhammad in 632, there was a big question of succession, whether it was his son-in-law or his, uh, or an uncle. And the Sunni-Shia split today is the result of a fight over which of those guys was going to be the leader. And the um, Sunni group is 85% of Islam, and the Shia group is 15%, and the main place for that is Iran. But there's many other groups over the years, and then there's different interpretations of the Quran. And maybe in the ninth century, some guy gets, uh, be it spotted, he begins to say things. He might be called an Imam of some kind, and, and, uh, so he does some teachings. And so it's a little bit analogous to Western Christianity or Eastern Christianity, where over the years you have some different, uh, segments of it. But in Islam, they're, they're mysterious, at least to us. Who don't know that culture, and I'm not sure how clear they are to all the people who know that culture. But there is a little bit of parallel where you have these different groups,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and there is there is credible evidence that in the second century after Muhammad, uh, somebody gathered up all the different versions of it because they were an oral. It was an oral tradition first, and then somebody selected. I don't have it in front of me, but somebody selected and pulled together a definitive. Quran and the, the other, whatever remained, was all burned. And so that's sort of the, how the canon was made. But the Quran itself is subject to interpretation. I've read uh, there's some guy, in, I think Egypt, he's, he's trying to make a new definitive Quran. So it's pretty iffy. Any, anybody can find something in the Quran to support their position, and that makes it so difficult to decide who to listen to. So Finally, you settle on one of these traditions that you're part of. Say this new, new caliphate. They get religious people working with the leader. He's a, a political religious leader, and they they focus on uh, uh, emphasizing different things in in the same book. They're it's probably the same translation now for quite a while. But then you look at the stuff and you say, well, it could mean this. It could mean that. There's probably ten interpretations of jihad based on uh, two two doctrines by Muhammad on jihad offensive and defensive, so it's difficult to know uh, what to say, and you can say what you want, finally. It, that makes it tough to write on, too, you know, because if I say this thing that I just said to you before we went on the air about uh, there's no separation of church and state or religion and government in Islam, and a good example is Iran today, that uh, that guy who's head of uh, Iran, the religious leader, they do have a president, but he's a, uh, a figurehead, he doesn't do anything politically that isn't approved by the religious leader, and the religious leader then has political religious authority. And uh, so that's uh, you choose which one of those kind of people you want to follow. It makes it difficult. Uh, but the the point I made, though, I said to you before we went on the air, I'll restate that Islam is a religious political movement with no separation of religion and the state. And I'm sensitive to this because I have a book on the First Amendment on the religion clause called Liberty of Conscience. So I've been fussing with this stuff for years, and you can see this. Um, So I would say this, uh, following that idea. Current Islamic attacks, wherever they're going on, are the political side at work. And I would say we infer and I'd like somebody else's opinion on this, but I know our First Amendment. I think we infer that if their political side is at work they forfeit any rights they may claim under the First Amendment's religion clause in this country. That would be true in this country. We don't know about it anywhere else, but and I I'm gonna think about that and write a little piece about it. But I think there's something there. Mm. So um so I, I would say when we see uh, people can't hide under the religion cause if they're doing political mayhem, which is military stuff, I don't uh, they can't do that, because uh, uh, they're a religious political movement, if they do that political military stuff, they're not protected by the First Amendment. That would be my view sitting here thinking about it mm-hmm. and getting ready to write on it.
0: Well, this is fascinating. Uh, today we're talking with uh, Dr. L. John Van Til. He's actually the nephew of Cornelius Van Til, and um, he is the Fellow Humanities, Faith, and Culture for the Center of Vision and Values, and that's associated with Grove City College. Oh, by the way, and we we were talking about—we got into this discussion talking about Osama bin Laden, his background, what he believed, and um, what impresses me, and you've mentioned this, is— this leader, Osama bin Laden, and the follow-on leaders are very smart men, very, very well-educated. Uh, the, the, one of the new guys has his doctorate. Uh, these are no dummies that, that have led uh, in this religious-slash-political war against the United States. I think we have to call it that. I think we have to make that distinction like you're doing. Go ahead. Yeah, so... Um, one question right away comes to my mind is how do you um, how do you protect our people here in the United States? I'm not sure um, we can get our minds around this when we're so politically correct, when we're so worried about uh, offending somebody because oh oh you're being racist or whatever. How do we protect our own people?
1: Well, first of all, we have to clean up our our, our political correctness. This I'm older. So all my years of teaching, I would say to my students, I never bought into political correctness. It's just a fad. Well, remarkably, the last five, seven years, this thing has gone crazy in this country, and everything gets sucked into it. And one of the interesting things said about it recently was the president of a Methodist college, probably in Oklahoma. I'm not sure you could look it up. I just remember seeing it on the news. And he, he basically said that as part of this... Thing that came out of the University of Missouri and the kids want space and freedom to whatever, whatever. And He basically said, just grow up. That All that has nothing to do with an education. And, and then it quieted right down at his school. <laughs> so um, that that whole thing has to be dealt with more. And I've been writing on that here pretty soon. I, I want to write on a, a topic called... I've had it on my desk. I have a list of stuff I wake up every day and there's something new, but the difference between giving offense and taking offense. And there, there's a scriptural root for that problem. But um, everybody, well, I'm offended. Well, then you have to say, though, well, wait a minute. Do you have a right to be offended? In many of these cases, it's no. You know, somebody says, well, somebody said so-and-so, and I'm offended. Well, sorry, you don't have that right. <laughs> you know, <laughs> And now there can be people can do offensive things. And and you could legitimately take offense at something if somebody started to ridicule your faith. You could say, "Well, that offends me," and that would be that would be legitimate just because somebody. Uh, I saw some young woman on a campus in Missouri or something screaming and hollering at, at somebody that they she oh her my she was just nuts with something she was offended. And if you stopped thinking about it, she didn't have any basis for that. Actually, it was a political. The tirade that she was on, but and somebody should have stopped. Just now, wait a minute. So I want to write a little piece on that. If there's, it's, it's a very simple thing. Not, every, not everything you, you know, some things. Uh, just uh, if we have free speech as we do, which is a great blessing, you might be unhappy by something that's said. Now you can't. Somebody can't threaten to. Kill uh, you or something? You say, yeah. I'm. That's not a good idea. That that I find that very offensive. You know, but just the <laughs> ordinary things that you don't like. You say, well, you offended me. Well, it, sorry, it doesn't wash when there's mm. free speech. So we got that problem. We have to clean that up. Yeah. But I also uh, we we have a big problem because I've always uh, said that we. Um, have religious liberty in this country as a blessing from God so we can preach the gospel as Christians. And uh, we stopped doing that effectively and working it out in our politics and so forth uh, after the Second War. And I've written on how um, Justice Black and his decisions uh, misconstrued what Madison said and so forth. And in, in a lot of stuff uh, that's that's published through um, Vision and Values, but by but he's reflecting society. So uh, Christianity's suffered, and and so we've given up and given way to a lot of secular stuff. And you know, if we're having a conversation. If we're going to end on a positive note, we got to say that we're going to. We need a revival. Some people talk about it, but we need a revival. Amen. Uh, so that we know that we're ultimately involved in a spiritual struggle and and Islam is part of that um now i'm going to go off quick in another tangent with islam we We have to recognize that we can't accept Sharia law uh that comes from Islam as legitimately used in the United States because it's not consistent with our constitutional system so if some Islamic person, I haven't written this, but if some Islamic person says, well, I I have a right to Sharia law here in the United States, we have to say, no, you don't, because it's not that's consistent right. with the Constitution. And that's the end of the matter. And the state of Oklahoma three years ago passed a constitutional amendment and said, we can't use Sharia law in any courts of the state of Oklahoma. And I think a federal judge issued an injunction against that. i got to see where it is right now. But that's a real problem. It's not abstract or maybe somebody's imagination, it's a real issue. So, But to see this, the absence of separation of religion and the state in Islam gives us the clue as to how to deal with this problem of Sharia law, because um, that's that's a political uh, uh, view that's not consistent with our Constitution, therefore it's void. It yeah. can't be claimed. It can't be claimed.
0: Yeah, that's very helpful.
1: We have to push that. We have, We
0: have to push that. I see our clock is running out here. Today on the phone line has been uh, Dr. L. John Van Til, uh, actually nephew of Cornelius Van Til, and he's uh, a fellow, Humanities, Faith, and Culture at the Center for Vision and Values. Uh, Dr. Van Til, in the last 15 seconds remaining, um, if someone wants to read more of your writings, where do they go?
1: Well, they can go to uh, the Center for Vision and Values. That will, it's at Grove City College, but under that name, the Center for Vision and Values, it will pop up, and then it will show, um, oh, I guess staff or fellows or something, and then the, there are names will be there, and you click on my name, and there's some things listed there. Um, I don't know how much. I don't look at that very often, but there's probably <laughs> a dozen or so. I've, I've published hundreds of things, including um, some books. Um, I got to put a plug in for a book that was published last week that I wrote. It's a it's an intellectual biography of Calvin Coolidge.
0: Oh, wonderful! And his
1: his his name is actually John Calvin Coolidge, named after his father, John Calvin Coolidge. And he was no dolt or idiot like the uh, New Deal historians have pictured. He was a wonderful Christian man, and that's available on Amazon.
0: Well, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Van Till. It's been a joy and pleasure having you on the program today. And, uh, dear listener, if you'd like to hear this again, a recording of this is up on our website. Check it out. We're found at RedeemerBroadcasting.org. Dr. Van Till, thanks for joining us.
1: Well, it's a pleasure, Dan. Thank you.
0: And, dear listener, please join us next week for another edition of A Plain Answer.